0: Welcome to UBP's Investment Outlook 2024. This series of six episodes will explore UBP's key convictions for the upcoming year. We will be covering topics such as the economic environment, our main plays, as well as a specific risk. I'm your host, Robert Wibberley, from UBP's Group Communications. The focus of this episode is UBP's view on fixed income for 2024. We will start by looking at our outlook for sovereigns before delving into credit, including the additional tier one segment and high yield. Finally, we will wrap things up by looking at the main risks that could impact our outlook. I am joined by Mohamed Kasmi, Chief Strategist and Senior Portfolio Manager for UBP's Global and Absolute Return Fixed Income Team. Hi Mo. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Robert. Pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. So diving straight in with a look at sovereigns. The US Federal Reserve, European Central Bank, and the Bank of England have dramatically increased their rates over the last 18 months in order to counter rocketing inflation. But in November, all three pressed the pause button. Does this mean that the Treasury and yields have reached their peaks? Or is there still more to come? so recent communication is clearly indicating
1: to us that we have passed peak hawkishness and actually the data seems to be suggesting that we may have passed peak rates as well it's indicating to us that it's a very interesting time to actually look at increasing the levels of interest rate duration and government bonds that are being held in portfolios especially at a time when valuations are screening as attractive as they are give it the sell-off that we've seen. So if we think about the communication front, we seem to have shifted away from how many more rate hikes are needed, if any, and towards how long policy should stay restrictive for. So if I think about the Fed, they're talking about proceeding carefully given how much tightening has already been delivered. They're also commenting increasingly on the tightening in financial conditions that we've already seen especially the recent move higher in long-end rates. And that seems to be doing some of the work for them and can be viewed as actually replacing rate hikes, and that's their own words. And if I think about the ECB, if anything, their communication has been even clearer. Given how hawkish some of the members of the board were earlier in the year, they've now moved towards a much more balanced message. And that really comes as a result of headline inflation
0: actually being on a two-handle now in the, in the eurozone. Well, given this outlook that we should have passed the peak, is there any preference on the yield curve as to where to be invested? Should we be looking at the longer end or more at the shorter end? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think at this stage of the
1: cycle, our positive bias towards duration is really towards the front end of the curve rather than the long end. So what you tend to see towards the end of hiking cycles is actually interest rate curve steepening where the front end outperforms the long end. And so over time, we expect interest rate curves to disinvert. And so we basically expect rate curves to steepen as well from here. And we could see this steepening take place for several reasons. It could be a more resilient economy, concerns around issuance and the budget deficit weighing on the longer end. And probably pricing in more rate cuts at the front end. And that's really why we prefer the front end. When you think about what's priced by the market. So the market is pricing the fed to keep rates at or above around 4% over the next few years. This is well above their own estimate for the neutral rate, as well as their guidance, where they actually have rates below 3% in 2026. So, what it's telling us is that at the front end of the curve, a lot of hawkishness is currently in the price, which shows that from a valuation perspective, it's a very interesting and attractive allocation.
0: Well, I mean, that's clear. So, we have a preference for the front end, but how about the region? Is there any regional preference with regards to government bonds? Yeah, so I
1: think if we take a step back and think about growth dynamics, It does feel as if we're in a world of US exceptionalism from a growth perspective. We've clearly seen this over the past few months, and I think it can probably continue. Household and corporate balance sheets are in good order. Labour market and wage growth has been strong, and that's really been supporting consumption. In contrast, if you look at growth elsewhere, such as the eurozone, it's been a lot weaker. We basically had little to no growth. What it means is that inflation might end up being a bit stickier in the U.S. compared to the Eurozone. And what it suggests is that European rates can probably outperform U.S. rates. We've seen that over the past couple of months, but that dynamic could perhaps continue, especially if the ECB ends up cutting rates before the Fed and in a larger scale than the Fed, given this diverging growth outlook I've described. And that's not necessarily in the price today.
0: Okay. Now, if we look back over the last year, we have had several episodes when the market saw a pivot coming, which didn't play out. So the question is, is this another false door? Why is this time? Is it different? So central banks are
1: data dependent, so we can't necessarily rule that scenario out. But I think at these levels of rates, those risks have been significantly reduced. What it means is that if we are wrong and we do see any further signs of policy tightening come through, it's going to be very incremental in nature. Compared to the over 500 basis points worth of hikes have already been delivered by the Fed, for example, where the focus should probably shift towards when the first rate cut will actually be. It also seems to be the first time that central banks are adopting a more patient attitude. They're realising that they can't keep hiking rates until inflation is at target, as that would be a clear policy mistake. And they're probably becoming more comfortable doing this due to the data. So we're finally beginning to see some signs of loosening in the US labour market. The unemployment rate, for example, has risen from 3.4% to 3.9% now. Payroll demand has clearly slowed as well. So the labour market is finally rebalancing. It's exactly what the central banks and the Fed in particular has been looking for.
0: And this should allow them to remain patient. Amo, what happens if inflation doesn't return to the 2% target? Are you assuming we get back to target before central banks begin to cut rates? I mean, not necessarily. And, and again, I think it goes back to the comment I just made around
1: central banks becoming more patient and they're becoming more aware that monetary policy works with lags. And the focus here is really on real rates. So if the fed maintains its current policy rate, but inflation continues to move lower, then mechanically real rates become even more positive and policy becomes even more restrictive from this real rate perspective. So what we would expect, and if we look ahead to, you know, the middle of next year, as inflation continues to move closer to the target, not necessarily at target with unchanged rates, this means that real rates would have risen and central banks will see that as an excuse to begin to deliver the initial rate cuts to keep real rates stable rather than rising and especially the case if we begin to see some growth weakness coming
0: through. So to wrap it up on sovereigns, can yields fall meaningfully from here, or are we just talking about a stabilization in rates? So so I think to answer this question, it's more about portfolio
1: construction and, and really looking at the risk reward. As we look ahead to next year, we think it's the time to build more balanced portfolios within fixed income where one's holding both government bond risk and credit risk. So from an all in yield perspective, this type of portfolio construction is very attractive and it makes sense from a carry perspective. Secondly, it's also a setup where if we do go into a weaker growth environment, if growth actually surprises to the downside, we see some stress in the market. Whilst credit spreads could widen a little. Holding government bonds would protect portfolios. You'd see yields decline. The market would price in these rate cuts even sooner. So yes, in this scenario, yields could fall meaningfully. And so what I'm saying here is that we're basically moving back to historical correlations within fixed income. We're holding interest rates and government bonds will begin to protect portfolios, which is why we argue, for this more
0: balanced portfolio approach. All very clear. So that covers the sovereign side. Now, turning our attention to corporate fixed income, credit has been very resilient over the past year, much more than anticipated given the rates environment. But should investors be worried about large-scale credit defaults in 2024, as companies need to refinance at higher rates? So this is clearly going to be a key topic of conversation
1: as we look ahead to next year. And I think there are a couple of points to be made here. The first one is if we look historically, what really drives default rates is the growth cycle and specifically nominal growth. Now this makes sense, right? Companies report in nominal revenue terms and over the past year. And if we look at what to expect over the next couple of years, nominal GDP is expected to remain pretty robust and it really explains why default rates have been so low this year as well and they could continue to remain benign in the coming years. So that's one point but now let's focus on refinancing risks. So when you look at maturity walls, yes everyone has been discussing the pickup in refinancing requirements over the next two years, 24 but 2025 in particular. But what has been less discussed is the point that over the course of this year, there has already been some good progress made. Through new issues, through tenders, we have seen estimates for the maturity wall in the US over the next two years to decline by 30% compared to those estimates at the beginning of the year. That does take a bit of pressure off. Also, high yield companies have generally issued fixed rate debt which means that the transmission mechanism of higher rates through to actually higher funding costs is quite slow and pretty gradual. So let's take the double B segment of the market, for example. If all 2024 and 2025 bonds were refinanced today, then we estimate that the coupon would only be rising from 5.3% to around 5.7% which appears pretty manageable for the segment as a whole. So with all that said, in our view of a soft landing rather than a hard recession, we do think that high yield will be an interesting allocation in 2024 for those who are able to move down the rating spectrum. And that's especially the case given that in terms of all-in yields, high yield can be yielding you double digits in parts, such as investing through CDS indices, so well above cash levels. And that makes the opportunity cost from not being invested as quite high. And we also think that at such high levels of yield, a lot of those downside risks that are discussed and we have just discussed are
0: already in the price to some extent. Uh, How about additional tier one bonds? I mean, earlier this year, AT ones were front page news following the takeover of Credit Suisse. Is it safe to wait back into 81s again? Has the market recovered from the volatility of Q1?
1: So the 81 market is one that we are positive on heading into 2024. So firstly, from a fundamental perspective, when you take 81 risk, you're taking subordination risk within the banking sector. And the banking sector to us remains one of the key beneficiaries of this higher inflation and higher rates backdrop. And we've clearly seen that in the latest earning rounds. So from the macro perspective, it makes sense to have an allocation to the banking sector. Yes, there was plenty of volatility after the events of Credit Suisse, but we believe that we have now passed several key hurdles that make this segment of the market an attractive investment again, especially given that both issuers and regulators have made investor and 81 friendly announcements of late. So if we think about the regulators, they've emphasized the importance of the asset class as a source of bank funding. Eurozone and UK regulators, they distant themselves immediately from the decisions taken in March to fully write down Credit Swiss 81s. From the issuer perspective, positively, we've had large European banks continue to call their bonds, even if it's been uneconomic to do so. So that's clearly a positive signal for the asset class. And they've probably been willing to do that due to the strength of the new issue market. A case in point here is the recent UBS 81 bonds that were issued a Swiss bank at the epicenter of the crisis for which demand was reportedly close to 40 billion US dollars in total. That clearly highlights how much the market has moved on from the events of March. And finally, from a valuation perspective, 81s continue to offer an attractive entry point, especially given that around only 40% of the market is currently being priced to call their bonds, despite the recent trend of major banks calling their bonds, which we think will continue. Again, it suggests that the market is pricing in a bit more
0: of a worst case scenario. Amo, what other segments of the market do you have a preference for looking ahead to next year? So away from the segments that we've discussed, we also find the double B segment
1: particularly interesting. So this segment of the market has historically delivered a pretty high level of returns of above 7% over the investment cycle annually. But what's really interesting is that these returns are around 2% higher than for triple B bonds, but with a similar volatility. So, a much better risk reward profile and what seems to be a bit of a sweet spot within credit markets. So, why is that? So, although double Bs are lower in rating, you're not necessarily taking on more default risk than triple Bs. So, in terms of one year historical default rates for double Bs, it's just 0.6%, whilst it's 0.2% for treble Bs. So, it's really when you get into those lower quality, high yield ratings where you see those significant defaults rise. And when you look at fundamentals for double Bs, they're also in pretty good shape for this stage of the cycle.
0: Thanks, Mo. So overall, you sound positive across the fixed income asset class for 2024. But what about positioning? Are investors already fully loaded on fixed income products? Is this already in the price? So I think it's a great time to actually be having this conversation. Because as I've
1: described earlier, valuations are attractive. The data is beginning to slow on both growth and inflation. The central bank shift is taking place, but the market is not positioned nor necessarily priced for this. So if we look at money market funds, for example, you can view them as a bit of a cash alternative. They've seen record inflows over the past two years as investors basically move out of fixed income and into cash-like solutions given how high cash rates were. It indicates that investors are Underinvested in fixed income and they've probably been extra cautious to reallocate towards the asset class due to the difficult last couple of years. But we do expect there to be a first-mover advantage of acting sooner rather
0: than later. Okay Mo, we now have a good understanding of the outlook on fixed income. But before we wrap it up, what do you consider the main risks to the outlook? Sure. So I think the key risk
1: is the fact that central banks are currently still so data dependent. So we are dependent on the data playing out as we expect to some extent. If we are wrong, however, I think the portfolio construction that I described earlier should end up providing protection, which is why we think holding balanced portfolios of credit risk and interest rate duration risk really makes sense today. So let's think about some scenarios. Let's imagine growth surprises to the downside and we actually see a recession. So holding government bonds and portfolios, those safe haven assets will protect the risk held as the market will price in rate cuts. And as flows move towards those safe haven assets, on the other hand, let's imagine inflation and growth are even stronger than expected. We would expect central banks in this scenario to maintain rates above the neutral rate for a longer period of time. What's positive in this scenario is that the market is actually priced already towards this environment of higher rates for longer. So we shouldn't necessarily see a major or significant reaction where you can continue to pick up the attractive carry that's being provided within fixed income currently. In terms of other concerns that are talked about, a lot of them come from technicals, whether the heavier issuance schedule or growing budget deficits, where will this extra supply be bought from? Who's going to be that final buyer? On this, I think the recent communication from Fed members in particular does show a heightened sensitivity to moves in long-end rates. What it means is that if there really is a supply concern and technicals get out of hand, it seems as if the central banks, including the Fed, they'll look to use their tools to maintain the proper functioning of the treasury market. We've seen that in the past as well. And in the end, that should cap this
0: risk to some extent. Super. And uh, if you could wrap this all up, providing us with three key takeaways for 2024, what would they be? So very simply, we believe we've passed peak hawkishness
1: from the central banks and potentially peak rates. So it's time to reallocate to government bonds looking ahead to 2024 and building that interest rate duration in portfolios. The second point is in terms of credit. We do see plenty of opportunities with fundamentals still in check from the bottom up and the growth backdrop still supportive 81s and double b's are prime examples finally we think it's time to build balanced portfolios both credit and government bond risk as this construction should provide protection in stress moments and it's in stark contrast to what we've seen over the past 2 years we are returning historical correlations within fixed income
0: all very clear Mo many thanks for your time today let's speak soon thank you Robert thank you for listening to this podcast if you would like to explore more of our insights please tune in to our Spotify channel or go to upp.com